good to see you all. Good morning. <laughs> Haven't seen you in a long time. Um, former volleyball player, I coach volleyball, or, or did, and, but anyway, welcome. Um, it's been a year since I stood behind this uh, pulpit. It's a year ago May, and so it's good to be back. It's good to see you. Missed you folks. Really enjoyed uh, my time here. And in case you don't know me, my name's Tim. I'm a recovering politician, so I won't be brief. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed because I worked all night on that. So, um, I got asked, uh, Pastor Cal, as most of you know, is, is uh, in quarantine. <laughs> you know, we thought we would get to this point in uh, 2021, turn the calendar, and we would be done with this nonsense, but it's still here. And uh, he contacted me about 1 o'clock yesterday afternoon. And so uh, in less than 20 hours, here I am. <laughs> I do have a sermon. And interestingly, uh, some of you know this, some of you don't, but I, uh, uh, now that I'm retired, I do recordings, I do voiceovers, and I write devotionals and record devotionals, and they go on, a, on an app called Whispers from God. And, and uh, a few months ago, they asked me if I would consider doing a series. They're starting to do series on their app. And so I said, sure, and they gave me the latitude, dangerous as it was, to decide what, what top my topic was. And so I chose, uh, being the cheery guy that I am, uh, disasters. <laughs> so we're going to talk about disasters this morning, like, like we haven't had enough of it, right? But if you look at the news every day, it's, it's like watching an episode of Daily Disasters. I mean, something every day somewhere in the world is going on. And it just, and I don't need to go down the list. You've seen it all. You know what's going on in the world. But when you think about disasters, what's the first book in the Bible that comes to your mind? For me, it's Job. And, and, if, I, and if I'm reading through this and, and I mispronunciate and say Job, you know I'm talking about Job. Because it's hard when you're reading the words that, uh, but it's, it's Job. And I immediately turn there and started reading the first chapter, and that was several months ago, and I'm still in the first chapter. <laughs> I haven't gotten out of it, and I've written, I think, five devotionals so far. I've got a couple more to go, and it's, it's, I haven't really moved very far out of the first chapter. And I always wondered how preachers could take a verse and preach on it for weeks at a time every Sunday, and now I know. Because some of you know as you read the Bible, and you go back to it, and you read something you've read hundreds of times, all of a sudden... You see something you didn't see before. God reveals something, and you just are astonished. I remember a few years ago, I was giving a sermon at a church, and I was reading, and I remember they talked, uh, it was talking about Moses and how he killed the Egyptian, and it said he buried him in the sand. I don't ever remember reading that. He buried him in the sand. Where was that? Where's that been? But this was the case with, with the book of Job. And if you turn to your book of Job in your Bible, Chapter 1, starting at verse 13, it says this. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. 
While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Now as you read through that, my first thought was, man, I'm glad I'm not that guy. To lose all of that in moments. Because one after the, it says right here they were still speaking, and one after the other came with more disasters, more tragedies. And if you go back to the beginning of chapter 1 of Job, you find that he had 10 children. He lost 10 children that day. And some are mistaken to think that he didn't grieve. He, he grieved, and the custom of the day was tearing one's robe and shaving his head. And clothes were very expensive. And probably the most expensive thing I have, which is not that expensive, is this suit. It'd be like me ripping the suit apart in grief, saying that the most expensive thing I have is of no value. It's meaningless because I am grieving that greatly. But usually what we do when we read the book of Job, we focus on Job. And my first takeaway, my first thought was reading this was about the messengers and survivor's guilt. Isn't that odd? It's always been about Job and what he went through. But as you look at it, there's a real story here about the messengers and survivor's guilt. A well-known American politician once said, never waste a good crisis. And actually, I think Winston Churchill might have said that also, maybe a little differently. But is any crisis good? And doesn't that sound like a cold and heartless and self-serving statement? To use a crisis to promote oneself or political gain or advantage just seems cruel, especially to those who survived a disaster and are dealing with the guilt they survived and others perished. You know, that kind of guilt is common in, among many of those who survived a disaster, and many wonder why they survived while others didn't. And maybe it was a matter of seconds, inches, or choices made that they escaped with their lives, or maybe there is a purpose and reason for surviving. While Job survived and others perished, he didn't blame God. But I couldn't help wonder about those messengers. They survived. Those that had to come and deliver the bad news, the lone survivors of each tragedy. And after they delivered the bad news to Job, they each concluded with the same phrase. 
and I alone have escaped to tell you. Being the only survivor and then having to deliver the bad news to Job had to be next to unbearable. When we read these passages, we think of what Job went through, but give a little thought to the messengers, and we don't hear anything more about them throughout the rest of the chapter. And one has to wonder how they dealt with being the lone survivors. They alone escaped. They must have found a kinship with each other, which, many, which may have provided some comfort, but the most reassurance, I think, had to come from Job himself. When he said, the Lord gave and the Lord had taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. The verse goes on to say, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He didn't blame God. And that had to give strength to those messengers who had gone through such a great trauma. Now, even Job, as he dealt with this, he set an example for these messengers. And what an amazing response in the midst of disaster and what comfort and encouragement to those messengers to hear him say this. I'm sure they were thankful they survived and more than likely terrified at what had happened and fearful they had to deliver the bad news. And while it doesn't say they suffered guilt about being the lone survivor, surely they would have thought Job would have asked, how did you survive? I would have asked that question. How did everybody else die? How did we lose all this? How did you escape? But Job doesn't do that. He doesn't lay that on them. Imagine the guilt. Had he done that, imagine the guilt they would have felt. They would have felt terribly guilty. But instead, he worships the Lord. Now, I've had the unpleasant duty of, of telling parents that their child had died and Sometimes in their grief, they would go from disbelief to anger, and sometimes their anger was directed at me, and sometimes they blamed me when I was just the messenger. But Job didn't blame them or God. Instead, he worshiped and he blessed God. And, and don't be mistaken, as I said earlier, the, the custom of tearing a robe was, was extreme grief. And while disasters come and go, there are those who survive and have a story to tell. Just like those messengers, they had an important role to play in bringing eyewitness testimony to Job. And eyewitness testimony is always the best. Knowing that feelings of guilt are common and considered normal can give survivors reassurance, but Job's response tells us where to turn and who to trust for lasting assurance. It would appear that those messengers who survived were spared for a reason. Someone had to be the witness. Someone had to remain to share what happened. And now this is a really good perspective for the Christian to hold. While others perish, we don't have to feel guilty we survived, but we can be thankful we remain because we have a purpose and responsibility to minister to others. And without those messengers, the story of Job would be incomplete. Sharing an eyewitness account of a disaster and how God worked in it can be one of the greatest gifts of comfort to those who bear the guilt of being a survivor. And just like the disciples as they watched Jesus ascend to heaven, they had a purpose to remain. Their desire, their strong desire, was to be with Jesus. They wanted to go with him, but he said, no, you remain. Go make disciples of all men. He gave them a purpose for their remaining. They were the messengers. And as Christians today, we become the messengers. 
And we should not use a crisis for personal gain, as some do, but use the moment to be a messenger to glorify God as Job did. Now, my second thought reading this passage was, why? Why do bad things happen? You know, you read the book of Job, and and even though we know more than Job did at the time as you read through it, uh, you still have that question, why, why did he have to go through all this? Why did all this stuff happen to him? Today, why are we going through all this COVID stuff? Why are all these disasters happening? What, what's going on here? Why do people have to die? And it's a natural reaction to disaster and devastation to ask why. And if you watch the news, anytime there's a disaster, they're all talking about it and, and trying to place blame somewhere and f- figure out why did this happen. And they'll, they'll impanel commissions to go f- figure out what happened and why it happened. And while we don't know exactly what God is up to, scriptures do give us some insights to sometimes the why. Genesis 3.17 tells us that when Adam and Eve sinned, a curse fell over the earth. And in Romans 8.22 it says, Since then, the entire creation has groaned in labor as with birth pangs. So much of what we see and experience happened as a result of man, not God, of sin. But when we don't know the why, our first instinct, instinct many times is, is to blame and question God, as Job would later do. The messengers came to Job with devastating news that had just occurred. And one messenger in particular believed what he witnessed was an act of God. Verse 16 of chapter 1, While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consume them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, more than likely, this messenger had never seen fire fall from the sky. So his immediate assumption that it was from God, and possibly a form of punishment. Now, that requires some speculation. It doesn't say that in the Scripture, but he does say it came from God. That's his assumption. While the messenger unwittingly blamed God, Job had a completely different reaction. After losing everything... He falls to the ground, he worships God, and doesn't blame him for what has occurred. But they both had one thing in common. Neither knew why these things had happened. Job 1, chapter 1, 6 through 12, 12, does give some insight into the why, and we can know what Job didn't know. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered, and the Lord said, and the Lord said, From going, uh, so Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Now, if that sums, sounds somewhat uh, familiar, if you look at 1 Peter 5, verse 8, says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So as he's, that's what he was doing. He was going to and fro across the earth, looking for who he may devour. And so the Lord says to him, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? 
You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to his face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So here basically, Satan was saying, Job will only serve God as long as the blessings keep flowing. But God knew Job's heart. And he was confident enough to allow Satan to take away all Job had and knew Job would not falter in his faith. While God didn't cause the disasters, he did allow them. And notice Satan says, stretch out your hand. But the Lord didn't. He allowed Satan to do it within limits. Now had Job known about the conversation between God and Satan, his reaction may have been totally different, as would ours. If you knew a disaster was coming... You would prepare. You would prepare what to say ahead of time. You would have told your children that, hey, don't go to your brother's house. You would, his reaction, it wouldn't have come from the heart what he said and he worshipped. He would have been, it would have been mechanical almost. When disasters happen, we don't know exactly what God's role in them are, but we can be confident knowing that nothing escapes God's attention and that he does care. Luke 12, verse 7 says, But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. A God that takes time to count every hair in your head is a God that cares immensely about every detail of our lives. We must also remember God did not spare his son from being falsely accused, beaten, spit on, humiliated, suffer crucifixion, and bear the sins of the world. It was his plan to demonstrate to man just how much and how far he would go to show his love for his creation. You know, it's easy to trust God and have faith when all is well, but when it's much harder when disaster strikes and we don't know the why. Now, later in the book of Job, he does question God. He does ask the why, and there's a lot of time spent on that. But his initial reaction was the appropriate reaction. Now, my third thought reading this was about a song from the 1960s called War. Some of you might remember that, or maybe... now you're not all from the 60s, obviously. But uh, you may have heard that. It's, been, it's played all the time. War, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. That's kind of how you feel about disasters. You go, what is all this, and what is it good for? And you think, that's well, nothing. I mean, what, what, does, what good does all this do? And we feel there's no possible good that comes from disasters. But in Genesis chapter 6, verse 17, we see that God himself brought about a flood to destroy his own creation. And some would say that demonstrates that God is a mean and angry God. Why would a loving God destroy so many lives? But the answer isn't far away if you read verses 5 through 8 of chapter 6 in Genesis. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry I have made them. 
But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So first, it was not God who was committing evil. It was man. And man must take responsibility for his actions. And verse 5 says that man's heart was intent on evil continually. And they obviously had no desire to have a relationship with the Creator. But notice also in verse 6, God was sad and grieved. He took no pleasure in man's destruction or make a knee-jerk reaction out of anger. In fact, it was just the opposite. It took Noah at least 100 years, some say 120 years, to build the ark. Man had all that time to repent. Man had all that time to heed warnings. And yet, they failed to do so. So to say God is not patient with man or arbitrarily destroyed man would be a misrepresentation of who he is. Now, disasters can also be a source of warning, just like road signs that warn you of danger ahead. In fact, men have heard warnings from prophets for thousands of years. Yet many ignore the warnings and are caught off guard by the judgment that follows. The entire history of the nation of Israel testifies to this truth. In Matthew 24, over 2,000 years ago, Jesus himself warns us of another coming judgment which will occur at his second coming. Even so, Jesus says the world will be caught off guard when he returns. Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. For the, coming of the, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. They had plenty of warning. We've had even more warning, 2,000 years. Whereas in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Despite the warnings, many will be surprised. Jesus' warnings will be ignored, and it's been over 2,000 years. All these generations have had these warnings before them. So to say God is unjust, unfair, not patient is just patently false. God has been consistent and just in his warnings to man, and it is man who chooses to ignore those warnings. We tend to put the responsibility for disasters on God, but we need to hold man accountable for his actions or inactions. And such were the plagues of Egypt. God, through Moses and plagues, warned Pharaoh numerous times that the failure to let God's people go would result in disaster. Because of Pharaoh's stubbornness and disobedience to God, Pharaoh and his own people paid the consequences. And eventually, Pharaoh would let God's people go, but as you read the story, he pursues them. After he changes his mind, and disaster follows as he and his army are swallowed by the Red Sea. And while the armies of Pharaoh were destroyed, a nation was saved. Disobedience and evil do have consequences, but amazingly, God still gives numerous chances to repent. 2 Peter 3 Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's not God's will that man should perish, but to warn man to repent and have fellowship with him, enjoy his blessings, 
And God wants to spend eternity with his creation. God is a good and patient God, but man's heart desires evil. Even our very thoughts give us away. Jesus said if we have an evil thought, we've already committed that sin in our heart. In the questions asked, I had someone just ask me the other day in a parking lot. He said, well, if that's the case, who can be saved? Same question the disciples asked. In Matthew 19, verse 25, who can be saved? John 3, 16, one of the most recognized verses in the Bible, provides the answer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We need to repent of our sins and receive the way God provided for us through his son Jesus to escape the disaster, the penalty of death. Disasters, what are they good for? Well, one thing they're good for, they can give us warning and multiple opportunities to repent and turn from our sin. They can move us closer to God or farther away. It's our choice. And what a patient and loving God that would give man thousands of years to repent. Now my final takeaway from chapter 1 of Job, I called the benefactors, which I changed about 6 o'clock this morning, and I'll explain that in a moment. (laughs) If you've heard of Johnny Erickson Tata, which most of you have, you probably know that in 1967, she had a diving accident at the age of 17, which left her a quadriplegic. This event changed her life physically. It also changed it in a spiritual way as she got closer and closer to God. She learned how to paint using her mouth. Excuse me. By 1976, she had a book released that turned into a number one international bestseller and eventually would be translated into 38 languages with over 5 million copies printed. In 1979, a movie about her life was released and shown around the world and was credited with introducing over 250,000 people to the gospel. She also established Johnny and Friends Ministry in 1979 to help families address the needs of family members who are disabled. In 1982, she began the Johnny and Friends Radio Ministry, and in 1989, she spoke to over 100,000 people at a Billy Graham crusade. And the list goes on to this day. For over 50 years, Johnny Erickson Tata has influenced hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, for the gospel, a claim few can make. While a tragedy to to lose the use of all your limbs, Johnny Erickson Tata turned it into a blessing. And had she not taken that dive in 1967, all those hundreds of thousands, or maybe millions, may have never known about Jesus. While much was taken, much was given. As Job said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Still others don't see it that way. And as Satan told God, if he took away Job's blessing, God would, Job would curse him to his face. In fact, Job's wife, as you recall, encourages him to curse God and die later on in that, that book of Job. But Job instead says... Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? Job points out a good lesson for us all. No no matter what happens, no no matter how you find yourself, in what position, what's going on in your life, trust in God. 
We are not promised there won't be disasters and sufferings along life's path. And not all disasters and sufferings are a result of sin. Some will preach that. It's not what I'm saying this morning. In one day, Job lost almost everything, children included, ten children. But he trusted God even though he didn't know why he suffered such a great loss. Later, he questions God, and God sets him straight on who he is. And Job, through his suffering, gets a real view of who God really is as God answers him and shows him the marvels of his creation, his power, and ability. Job was able to see greatness, majesty, and sovereignty through this terrible experience. And many who have experienced trials, tribulations, and disasters in their lives will often tell you that without it, they would not have grown close to God and that they grew stronger because of what they'd been through with the added benefit of being able to help others. And they become the benefactors. And what, when I said I had to change that, I was thinking as us being benefactors. We're not the benefactors. We're the beneficiaries. Now, has anybody ever been a beneficiary of, say, a life insurance policy? Uh, or had to sign your beneficiaries on life, life insurance policy? You, you list out who's going to receive the money when you die. And you don't have to do anything to be a beneficiary. You don't even have to be related. You could be a beneficiary, you could be a neighbor or anybody that someone decides to leave money to. And for thousands of years, those who have read the book of Job have benefited from his sufferings and become beneficiaries. Which answers a lot of the question for us, why? I think God uses to help the rest of his creation along the way for thousands of years. I mean, how many sermons have we heard about Job? And for the last 50 years, hundreds and thousands have benefited, become beneficiaries from Johnny Erickson Tata's life and her suffering. We didn't have to suffer what they did to benefit from what they learned about suffering. But you know what is way cooler and way greater than being a beneficiary is being an heir. That requires something. That requires you be a member of a family. And by definition, an heir is a person who inherits all the property of a deceased person as by descendant relationship, will, or legal process. But you have to be related in this case, unlike a beneficiary. In jolly old England, you've probably watched a lot of that in the news the last few weeks with the, the death of... Uh, the prince, and when the queen, when she dies, there will be an heir to the throne, and it will probably be Prince Charles, and if it's not him, if he's deceased, then it will be the Prince uh, William or Prince Harry, then they would become the king. And here's the really, really cool part for us as heirs, Romans eight sixteen through verse 18, the Spirit himself bears witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. Joint heirs with Christ. We get eternal life. We get to spend eternity with God. We get what Christ gets. Now, don't be confused. Jesus is still king, and we will bow down before him. Some 
take that verse to make themselves kings. And some also misquote that verse, and you'll hear it often repeated when they'll say, we are all children of God. If it says that, uh, with our spirit that we are children of God, they'll add the word all. We're all children of God. You've heard that. Maybe you've said it yourself. I probably have. But the truth is, we're not all children of God. I was shocked the first time I heard somebody say that. I said, what do you mean? We're all God's creation. To be someone's child, you have to be born into that family. And there's only one way to do that. As Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born again, which totally confused Nicodemus. And Jesus explained in John 3, 6, he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Jesus also said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to be born into the family of God, to be a child of God, to join the family, to become an heir with him. We are called to repentance and we are called to follow him. To be an heir with Jesus also means something else. Romans 8, verse 18, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, in case we miss this, it says, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. We have to suffer with him. So suffering can mean physical suffering. It can mean also mockery and ridicule, just as Jesus experienced. It also can mean a lot of other things that we go through. But suffering, so when we suffer, we're suffering with him, but we're also, because of that suffering, we're going to be heirs. You know, a lot of people preach and teach that when you're a Christian, and you can see them on television, a lot of, a lot of these, these guys, it's all smooth sailing. You're going to get the job, you're going to get the promotion, you're going to get the gal, you're going to get the guy, you're going to get the house, you're going to get the car. And that's not what Jesus taught. He says that we're going to suffer. Case in point, look what the disciples went through. He didn't promise them smooth sailing. He says, no, you stay and you be disciples. Oh, yeah, by the way, you're going to suffer. He said Paul would suffer greatly. And if you read that chapter of what he went through, he shipwrecked, jailed, stoned, beaten, and, and you're, you're exhausted by the time you get, you know, and again, it's that, that case of, man, I'm glad I'm not that guy. I didn't have to go through all that, but he did. So suffering and the way the world's going, the way our country's going, it, it's coming. The mockery will come. The ridicule will come. I think Christians will be marginalized. But remember, we're heirs if we suffer. We can become the beneficiaries by using the lessons of Job and people like Johnny Erickson Tata but we can become heirs by repenting and following Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you we can benefit from the suffering of Job and people like Johnny Erickson Tata. We especially thank you for the suffering that Jesus did on the cross and that we can approach you through his selfless act of taking our sin upon himself. 
While we desire not to suffer, we ask that you give us strength to say like Job, blessed be the name of the Lord, and may we use whatever comes our way to lead others to you. We pray in the name of Jesus that is above all other names. Amen. you Tim. So I'll stand and close out in our last song. <laughs> 